We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match and programming was the fuse as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. song that brought us into the episode today is Missile Command by Tony Longworth from his Atari album. We'll hear more of that later. Today we're going to hear part one of our interview with Steve Golson from GCC and what an appropriate song Missile Command is for GCC started their life creating a speed up kit for the game Missile Command from Atari called Super Missile Attack. Listen now as Steve Golson magnificently tells the story of GCC and how they became Atari's secret weapon. So, you know, as far as I can remember, uh, uh, GCC was like this legendary company to me. Not even when I was a kid. Even, even you know, when I... I don't know if you remember, there was an article in a magazine called Electronic Games about the 7800. It was like the first big article about the 7800 that came out, probably the only one too, because it was in 1984. And I think they oh. mentioned in there that GCC made this. And I, I hadn't heard of you guys before that. I'm like, oh right. my God, this, this Maria thing sounds amazing. Like what, yeah. what is this? Um, well, we tried to keep a very low profile. We did not want people to know about us. And, is that from the beginning when you guys oh, were yeah. doing your speed well, up kits or? Oh, well, no, when we, when we did speed up kits, I mean, we had an 800 number and advertised in the trade magazines and were, were known as this, uh, uh, with, with our first product, the super missile attack. So we were selling that and, and, uh, people knew about our lawsuit with Atari and everything. But once we started doing work for Atari, we just figured, Hey, we do not need to, people do not need to know about us. As long as we get paid, that's all we care about. And we'll just uh, be our little quiet secret selves it's cool. in, stuck in Cambridge. So and you were, so you were, it was, it, it wasn't, was it Harvard you guys went to? MIT. And I'm sorry that I just, yeah. I just, I just committed a moral sin. <laughs> yes. Harvard, Harvard is that little, liberal arts college up the river right yeah i've heard of them they're the most the most uh, well-known college in harvard square <laughs> so did you go so, to school technology were you an engineering student no okay so my story strangely enough is i was uh in uh in at mit uh everything is numbered and i was in course 12 which was earth and planetary sciences and so I was studying uh, seismology and oil and gas exploration. So, which that is what my father had done. So I sort of followed him into that. And so that was, that, I was a science guy, earth science. All of the, the oil and gas geophysics exploration was all 
signal pro digital signal processing and computers and I said oh I really should understand how that works and so I took a introductory electronics class for non electrical engineering people and so I took this class and I said oh well, that's a lot of fun and uh, I enjoyed it and uh, I took a follow-on class which was a digital design lab class which was set up for electrical engineering grads but I signed up for it and Kevin Curran who was in my same suite at the at, at our dormitory McGregor house Kevin was taking the class at the same time so and the really cool thing was Kevin had borrowed an oscilloscope he had his own oscilloscope and so he and I never had to go into the lab to because we had we had we had these little kits that were in in briefcases that you did all your prototypes and wiring and everything you had this little briefcase with kits and a breadboard and you could do things and you needed to create signals and watch them on an oscilloscope right. but we didn't have to go in the lab we could just do it on Kevin's oscilloscope so, That's cool. so Kevin and I got started doing so literally in the together. dorm room is what you're saying literally yes different dorm rooms <laughs> and and one of the one of the TAs who had to sign off all the lab work he also lived in our dorm and so we could call him over and he could look at our stuff working and running on the oscilloscope and he go oh yeah you you completed that assignment he'd sign it off just check it off yeah so we never had to go in so so that was my introduction to computer design and computer hardware so when GCC started up um, I had enough hardware background to do the hardware design that we needed and so that's how, how did I, that get started what was the what was the genesis of GCC okay so I'll tell you the long story and then you can edit it however you want <laughs> depends on how long a podcast you want so so the story is that we were living in this dormitory at MIT called McGregor house and this is I started at MIT in 1976 fall of 76 Kevin Curran and Doug McRae came in in the fall of 77 they were a year behind so they're youngsters uh, that's what you're saying they're the young guys yo yes yes um, and uh, uh, so, and, and so we all lived in the same suite, really, of 16. It was an all-male dorm, so 16 guys. Our dormitory, we had a, a pinball game downstairs in one of the common rooms that was owned by a, a local arcade owner or, or a route owner, as the, is said in the industry. Sure. Yeah. And so this guy had pinball games in a bunch of different places and this was one of the places and he got made money out of it and uh, so so the the pinball game that was in the basement got um, some abuse from the dormitory residents and it eventually kind of fell apart and stopped working and uh, that get got even more abuse and so this this uh, operator said, I'm not putting my game in your dormitory. You guys trash it. So he pulled the pinball game out. Well, we were about to have a big party at the dorm. And it was, you know, it was always fun to have a pinball game because it gave you something to do and play and something else. And so, and Doug McRae says, well, you know, I have a pinball game. Really? Well, it belonged to his brother, older brother, who was... I may have this wrong now. He was at a frat at Princeton, I think. Anyway, and they had this old uh, Pioneer, uh, Gottlieb, I think. Gottlieb oh. Pioneer pinball game, electromechanical pinball game. And Doug, who was driving back and forth to New Jersey anyway, even as a freshman, because he had a car, which was really cool, and he had a girlfriend, which was really cool. Which is cool. So he was always commuting back and forth. He's like, I'll bring my this pinball game. So he brings this pioneer game and sets it up in the common room. And everyone was like, wow, this is really cool. And so Doug is, huh, I guess I'm making money at having this <laughs> pinball game. It's like, gee, this is kind of interesting. And so he and Kevin started talking about this and said, gee, we should, why don't we partner up and we'll do this, we'll buy a new game and we'll, we'll like expand this business. And so the two of them, Doug and Kevin, started this this little partnership and they they 
pooled their money. They they said, we'll split this 50-50. And their, the, the first game they bought was, um, I believe, Playboy, right. um, which I think is Bally, Bally Playboy, I believe. And so brand new game, um, and they set it up. And, and uh, so they started maintaining this game and learning how games operated. And that was very successful. And then they bought another one and they bought another one. And they eventually expanded into the dorm next door. And they eventually expanded and bought arcade games, uh, uh, video games, not just pinball. Their first one was Exidy Fire One submarine game. Oh yeah, cool. It was one of the very first, one of an early microprocessor based video game. So they had that, and so, wow, that turned into a, sort of a fun sideline for these two guys. And I started helping them out sort of informally. If the two of them were away, I would make change for people and fix the game if the coin mech got, if the coin mech got uh, jammed and stuff like that. And uh, so anyway, so that was sort of the start of their partnership. And then in 78 or so, 79, they moved out of the dormitory and rented a house in Brookline. They were sort of, the two of them were kind of, oh, yeah, we're, we're done with dorm life. <laughs> and they both, you know, gee, we have girlfriends and we'll just, you know, have our own more room and away from everybody. So, um, and another friend, John Tilko, who had already graduated at that point, and Larry Dennison, who had graduated, was also... Who, so there was like four of them who were sharing this this townhouse in, in Brookline. And I was still at the dorm, and so that again, sort of, I was their kind of guy on the site to help out with games and uh, if there were any problems. So, so, and then that kind of brings us up to early 81, and they have these three Missile Command games. At this point, they're in three dormitories at MIT. And they've got pinball games, they've got a lot of video games. And they have these three Missile Command games, which were very successful at MIT, made lots of money. But what was happening with video games is that you would pay, if you were an arcade owner, you would pay $2,000, $2,500 for one of these games in 1981. And then you would get really good revenues for a few weeks, a couple months, and then the players would learn how to beat the game. Right, right. And the players would learn how to, oh, they would drop the quarter in and they would play for hours. Right. Well, you're not making any money at that point, right? You want a new quarter drop every few minutes. So what are you going to do? Well, the arcade, the, the video game companies, Atari, Bally, Williams, all those, well, buy a new game. Well, that's, geez, that's dumb. Why? There's nothing physically wrong with the game, right? The monitor's fine, the switches are fine, it's the program that's being beat. And so these things called speed-up kits had started in the industry. Uh, and one of the very first ones, it literally was a speed-up kit because it was for Atari Asteroids, which was a very popular game. And the way Asteroids works, Asteroids is a vector game. It's not a, it's not a raster scan. It draws a vector, which gave you these very crisp, high-resolution graphics. Yeah, one of my favorites. And, oh, Aster I have an Asteroids. That's wonderful. We can, we can talk about Asteroid, different ways to play Asteroids. <laughs> it's fun. So, so, so the way Asteroids works is... It, the, the 6502 microprocessor has a, an interrupt signal that comes in every four milliseconds, 250 times a second. This non-maskable interrupt comes in, boom, and interrupts the processor. And the processor wakes up, and it goes and it does all the gameplay stuff. Oh, what are the switches? What's happened? Redraw everything. Oh, this rock has moved here, and it redraws the screen. And then the processor, boom, goes back to sleep and it waits for the next NMI interrupt signal. Well, gee, if all you did was speed up that interrupt signal, <laughs> so instead of every 200 times a second, it was 300 or 400 or something faster, the whole game would play faster. Right. Right? I mean, it's this simple little hardware hack 
and the whole game plays faster. So you've sped up the game, hence speed up kit. Right. So that was the sort of the first real speed up kit for uh, for for games, and it was a, a a big success. There were lots of different speed up kits for asteroids because they had various levels of sophistication. Do you speed it up right away? Or maybe it plays at the normal speed for a few minutes and then it gets faster. Yes. Okay. And there were like, or, there, were, there were about a, almost 100,000 of those machines out there. So a lot of kits, maybe 70,000 in the US and 30,000 worldwide. There's a lot of asteroids machines out there. Compared. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I would, I knew, uh, yeah, the US number I knew was like 70 something thousand. And um, people say like 30 worldwide, but it's, it's, Getting those real numbers is actually kind of hard. At this yeah, point. it's yeah. yes, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a it's a tough thing. So 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 that was asteroids, and then there was a, an, another early kit was for Galaxians, and it was called uh, there was one called Super Galaxians, and it was oh you'd pay your thirty dollars or fifty dollars or whatever it was, and you would get a new set of ROMs and you would plug it into Galaxians and gosh, yes, it's faster. It had more, the attackers were a little faster or there were more of them on the first screen or... I have to say, I never like, got half the first screen done in Galaxians. I would never have needed a speed up kit for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you didn't play it enough. No. So. So, so the idea of speed up kits, and I think Kevin and Doug had bought one of the Galaxians enhancement kits, speed up kits, and certainly knew about the asteroids. I'm not sure if they had, uh, I don't think they bought an asteroids machine because they were old by the time uh, the two of them had gotten into games. Right. So they said, gee, well, we need, we need a speed up kit for missile command because our missile commands are not getting any, uh, the revenues are down. Sure, it was, so, like, it was like a business decision. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a business decision. It's like, hey, we want to buy a kit for Missile Command because the revenues are down. So they start calling all these companies who had done speed up kits. And do you have a kit for Missile Command? Oh yeah, we're thinking about it. Yeah, not yet, we're thinking about it. And, and looking back on it, the problem was that these companies had a, a relatively simple level of expertise. Right. right. Like you said, they're speeding up the interrupt. That's their, that's really their goal, right? Well, for, for, for asteroids, they, they exactly that they were, they were speeding up the, the, the interrupt and they were a little sophisticated about how much did you speed it up and when did you decide, for example, one of the kits decided, well, we will speed up after a certain number of the little saucers have showed up on the screen. Right. Because because okay. people would do their saucer, you know, the, the ship hunt where... Yes, that's right. Yes. And so, okay, after four saucers have shown up, then we'll, we'll speed up. Well, how can you tell how many saucers have showed up? Well, it turns out that there's individual noise signals in the hardware for each of the sounds created by the game. So you could just watch that signal. And if it triggered, you say, ah! It's making the little saucer sound. So there's one little saucer and you could just count and just have a simple little hardware counter. And so this very simple hardware could do this sophisticated behavior of, okay, wait until there are some number of saucers and then speed it up by this amount. Okay. That's fascinating because so, you're seeing the speed up kits really, yeah, I always thought maybe they you know, did something to the code, but they're not. They're just looking at the signal thing, electronics. Well, some of them. And that's the way, that's the way Asteroids did it. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. They did it. So, so they were strict. They were really just hacking the hardware right. at a very simple level and not doing anything with the software. Now, the Galaxians, they were hacking the software, but what they were changing were things like tables. And so you find this table in the ROM, which is how many attack objects are there for each wave. And it would be, okay, this byte would, you know, 12 and then 12 and then 12 and then 15 and then 15 and then 20 and then 20. And so each wave, how many attack objects are there? Well, ooh, 
you could figure that out just by playing around a little bit with the, the ROMs. And so you change those individual bytes and guess what? You've added more characters to the screen. Sure, yeah. Oh, the other thing you would find is you would find the text string that said Galaxians and you would change that to be <laughs> something else, right? So to be super Galaxians. And so, and so again, you're not, you're not disassembling the code you're finding tables and you're finding text strings and you're you're changing those and you're editing the binary file itself you're not you're not making your own right um correct you're not creating it from first principles no. so so you could take you would take the rom you would suck it into memory perhaps or into your rom programmer and you could do a simple search for different things and you could you could understand it, reverse engineer it enough to know where those tables were. Um, and then the other thing you would do, okay, for Pac-Man, for example, the Pac-Man speed-up kits or enhancement kits, they would change the maze. Well, again, you find the table in ROM which tells you which character yes. builds the maze. And, and so you could change the maze to be something else. Well, the gameplay of the way the machine worked, it, it looked at the maze characters to decide which way the players are allowed to move. So it's not like you had to, again, you did not have to do anything other than change this table that has the description of the maze in it and the whole behavior of the game would, play, sure. would change. Oh, and then the other thing you would do is, oh, you would find the graphics ROMs and you could reprogram those. You figured out how the pixels were coded and you could put in your own graphics. So, so there were these Pac-Man kits, but again, all they're doing is they're, they're changing the graphics ROM and they're changing the maze and they're changing the text strings. Sure. And yeah. Okay. You've, it's you've very changed. similar to how many like um, NES ROM hacks are done. They're basically, they, 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 they don't reprogram them. They just go look at the ROM and change out the graphics and, You'll see a Super Mario Brothers that has different graphics, and it's basically the same, the same thing. Yes, um, they did many years yeah. later. Yes, exactly, similar sort of thing. There was there were um, uh, kits for Space Invaders, which all it did was change the character, so sure. that it wasn't the uh, uh, you know I, I remember one oh this was. 1979, because it was 79. Space Raiders no, came out in really 78. Than it, so. was, it was after the, the, the Iranian hostage crisis. So 79, um, it's, it's November 79 is when it ended, because that's when, when Carter got, no, 80, sorry, November 80 yeah. is when it ended. Sorry. Yeah, or or actually January of '81 when oh, Reagan when they let know, him out. The yeah. day Reagan took October office. surprise. October surprise is what you're. Yeah. So 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 I think it was seventy seventy nine was when it started. Yeah. Uh, was when the hostage crisis. Anyway, it started this great. Uh, you know, people hated the Iranians. Oh my gosh. Oh, you know, Iran bad. bad. So there was a, a kit for space invaders that made the characters so instead of the uh the 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 alien monsters coming in it was little oil well characters <laughs> okay and and the ufo that flew across the top was an ayatollah khomeini head that went across the top so so somebody figured that out yeah, right? and, yes. and again it's like okay i figure out the encoding of the character pixel by pixel and i change it and burn a new set of ROMs and there you go, right? So, so the idea of enhancement kits and these companies that were making these enhancement kits was, was out there. Um, and so Kevin and Doug call these folks up and they're all like, yeah, we don't have one. There was one company that was working on a missile command enhancement kit. And they had done it in this very awkward way. What they were, they were able to figure out which address stored the number of um, free lives, right? The number of extra cities. And they hacked it 
to prevent the number of cities from getting above a certain amount or something like that. And so it was this piece of hardware that was doing address decoding and monitoring the address bus. And it was a lot of work because that's how it worked on asteroids, right? We'll do the same sort of hacked up thing. We can watch it. So Kevin and Doug and Kevin were like, gee, nobody's got one of these. Hey, we go to MIT. (laughs) You know, I bet we're smart enough to figure out how to do this. And that's how GCC got started. That's cool. Um, And so the two of them, they said, okay, yeah, we're going to do this. And there was a handful of us who were, uh, uh, by this time I had moved into this same townhouse in, in Brookline. This is spring of 81. And they decide, hey, we're going to do this. And a handful of us were like, well, that sounds like fun. Yeah, that sounds like a fun hack. Let's, let's work on that. So that started in March of 81, uh, spring break, actually. Uh, so instead of going to the beach, we stayed home and worked on disassembling Missile Command. So, yeah. So, so I guess what was, since everyone else was just hacking the ROM or, or doing the hardware hack, what did you guys do for that? So, so our, so there were a couple of problems with the existing enhancement kits. Let's take the Galaxian's kits, for example. Okay. So, so the Galaxian kits, first of all, they're only changing a small percentage of the code, right? They're changing maybe maybe ten percent of the code in in Galaxian, something like that. But their deliverable, what they shipped out, was an entire new set of ROMs, right? Because They're that was the easiest. Right? Well, number one, it's expensive. Yes. Why are you sending out six ROMs when you've only changed the code that's the equivalent of one, for example? Right. So so yes. No. So number one, it's too it's expensive. Number two, it's a copyright violation because the 90% of the code that you did not write, you're, you're shipping out. That's true. Right? You're shipping out all that code that you just copied from Namco or whoever. And so that's the second problem is a copyright violation. And the third problem is, this is the biggest problem, is that anybody else who has a prom programmer can copy your kit. Right. Right. So somebody, you know, some arcade owner, they're smart enough to copy ROMs. They know how to do that because that's something that they do routinely if you're a big arcade operator. So, you know, I've got my eight Galaxian games. I'll buy one copy of this kit and then I'll just copy that. Just copy it across all yeah. of them. Yeah, right. So, so, uh, so Doug and Kevin, they're looking at this and talking about it. And they said, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to sell it as a, a little piece of hardware that will only have our code on it. So we do not have the copyright violation problem. All right. And we'll make it difficult. We'll, we'll make our little piece of hardware here difficult to copy so that you will, the, the, the cloners out there will not be able to clone our kit. You'll have to buy more copies of it. Sure. Okay. So that was sort of our, it's like right away, we're thinking about, yeah, we're going to be modifying more than just a few tables here and there. We're going to understand the, the code and we're going to make changes to it. Right. So, so right away it was, we're going to disassemble it and understand how it works and figure out how to change it. So we can make wholesale changes to it. Uh, once you've decided that your kit will allow you to make arbitrary small changes to the code. Well, what sort of changes do you want to make? (laughs) And that's what, so we started trying and thinking about all sorts of things. And we had all sorts of ideas that never actually made it into our kit, but uh, uh, basically make it harder, right? right? Make it, make it speed up, make it harder. And then the adding the new, uh, you know, the big new thing was adding the UFO uh, attack um, item um, character. So the UFO character, which, and it, it attacked in a different way. It did not shoot a missile. It shot this laser beam 
Right. So that was something completely new that the players had to learn about. So, so that was a, that was a surprise that comes. That's cool. Yes. And it, and it does not show up initially. Right. So the first few waves act the same as original missile command. And then all of a sudden this new UFO shows up and all it does is it, it flies out and it has uh, um, different behavior because it flies out and it changes direction, <laughs> which the original ones, the airplane and the and the original satellite just Straight went over. across at a constant speed. So this UFO comes out and it changes direction and goes back the other way. And all of a sudden you're surprised. You're like, whoa, what is that? And you're like, what's that? And all it does is it flies. It just flies. And so for a couple of waves, it just flies out. And you're like, well, what is that? Gee, if I kill it, I get some points. What's the big deal? And then all of a sudden this wave where it comes out and it stops and it starts making this charging up noise and then bam, you know, this laser beam blows up one of your city and you go, oh gosh. And so again, here's this new character that changes the way the game plays. Sure. And, and, uh, uh, very different, more difficult, more challenging for the player. The players loved this actually because they were bored with Missile Command. Oh, I can play Missile Command forever. Oh, ooh, here's this new thing. So, 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 so that was our idea. How how well did that that kit sell? And then how did Atari get wind of it? What was that whole process of them um, coming to talk to you guys about it? Or what what happened? So, so we started in March of 81. Here's the, the time frame, right? So, so March of 81 is when we started um, working on it. And by end of May, we were done. Um, by early May, we were advertising. We had put out the, uh, the advert where we're running the ads. So just in the span of a couple months, we got this thing all done and got the hardware designed and got who's going to build it for us and how are you going to ship it and you get a UPS account and you order your own 800 number from the phone company. <laughs> so was this 6502 assembly language? Do you, do you recall? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. And were you guys familiar, familiar with that already? No, not at all. How did you get familiar with it? Um, manuals by by trial and error. Yeah, so so this is fascinating. How you guys do looking that. at the uh, so so part of it was so it's assembler and it doesn't really matter what computer it is if you sort of understand assembler and what you're doing. So you know if you understood programming at all. Uh, I mean, I programmed my calculator, my right. Hewlett Packard calculator, right? And it's the same sort of very low level banging bits around. And you got um, registers, you got memory, you got a memory map. You po- you poke there, you turn something on, you turn something yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. And and Doug McRae had software background. Um, Kevin had a soft some software background. Um, Larry Dennison definitely did. Chris Rowe did. So, so we had people who knew, understood software, and the fact that it's sixty-five hundred two, some processor you've never used before, like, yeah, so what? <laughs> no, no big deal. No big deal here, right? Very cool. And so, uh, I think we found some some books, right? Apple II programmer guides and things that gave you a little. Oh, here's how sixty-five hundred two. You know, little 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 techniques and tricks that people would use with 6502, and some of it was just watching how Atari did it, and you would you would disassemble it. It's like, what is this piece of code doing? And you take it apart. Oh, I see, I see what's happening here. Oh, they're drawing the cloud. Oh, I see what's going on. Oh, well, how can you, how can we change that? Oh, here's this byte that's controlling how fast something moves or how you draw something on the screen. And so you would, you, you would learn it. It's just so you guys did that so quickly. You said you started in March and you were launched by May. That's just, that's a, that's a quick turnaround. That's what we do at MIT. We work, <laughs> we work really hard and solve problems. And so here's this problem. And how does missile command work? Okay. You know, start, figuring it out. And um, so you have to understand our, our workflow also. 
So, so we had this Genrad microprocessor emulation system, which basically is a, a, a computer looking thing that pretends to be your microprocessor. And it was used, say again? Whatever microprocessor it is. Uh, yes, you would get a different one depending on which microprocessor right. you were doing, right? So we got one for 6502. So, and it allowed you to basically pretend to be the processor in your 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 machine. You could say, oh, well, I tell me what's at this location in memory and allow me to write here and read here and start executing from this location. Breakpoint when you get to this spot in the code. So this was designed for someone who's building a hardware from the start, but you could use it for reverse engineering like we were doing. And it would actually disassemble the code for you. You'd say, wow. okay, start at this address and disassemble it. Turn it back into source code for us. But it would only do one screenful at a time. It would only show you like 20 lines of code. And we needed to capture that. And so we had sitting next to the Genrad system, we had Doug McRae's TRS-80 computer. And so you would look at what's on the screen of the Genrad and you would sit at the TRS-80 and type it in, all right? And so we had, and I have all this stuff. I have, you know, hundreds of pages of this disassembly that we typed in by hand into the, the TRS-80 so and then we could print it out and then you right. could look at it and you could annotate it and write it up. Oh, what does this routine do? Oh, this routine does the following and you could understand it. So, so that was sort of the first step was just doing this massive disassembly. This was not a nine to five job for you guys, was it? Oh, this was a 24 seven job for That's us. <laughs> and, and which was why it was fun doing over spring break because some of us got sort of time shifted and we would, you know, some were working late at night and some were working in the morning. And I, I remember doing things like leaving little post-it notes for the next person to come <laughs> in, the, you know, try this. And, and, um, or did you leave it? Go off to bed and the next person would come in and go, Oh, look what they found out. They, you oh. know, they discovered this. So in, in the span of just a very few weeks, we discovered an awful lot about how Missile Command worked. Very cool. And, and started making modifications to it, like, you know, right away. Oh, change this, change this. And how does that change the gameplay? That sounds incredibly fun, I have to admit. Oh, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was way more fun than going to class. So <laughs> we ended up, you know, so, so myself, I was supposed to graduate in June of 81. Doug was supposed to graduate, I think, although he was in a five-year dual degree program at that point. So maybe he, uh, Kevin, I think, was supposed to graduate. And we ended up like, yeah, sorry, we're just not going to. Right. <laughs> not, not yeah. This is so much fun. Stop going to class and and uh, just just play with these games. This is just, just an incredible amount of fun. So you, you started to sell them. What What happened? So we get the kit done. Uh, we start advertising in early May in the, the trade magazines. There were two major trade magazines for arcade owners, one called Replay and one called Playmeter. Sure. And so we advertise those and by end of May, we start shipping, shipping kits. And... Uh, you guys um, built them yourselves? You had someone man manufacture them for you? We had someone, uh, we, we contracted out the manufacturing. Okay. So we had a, someone who would make the circuit boards. We had someone who would do the, uh, solder all the chips in and everything. And then we did this final assembly um, at, uh, uh, at, at home because we had to package it up and put in the manuals and whatnot. Testing and out. so we had, we had, we did it or we contract, I think we had like little brothers, who, you know, came in for the summertime and uh, sure, uh, we've got, a, we've got a, a townhouse filled with arcade games and, you know, I mean. <laughs> oh, and also the first of the first of June, 
we moved because we lost the lease in the townhouse. So we moved to a different house. Um, oh, and Doug McRae got married. So That's he kind of got good. married and moved into his own house. And so there was a lot going on in early, early June. But uh, we're, we're selling these kits. Now, Atari, early on, early on, Kevin Curran called up Atari and talked to their legal department. Really? Yes. And he called them up and said, hey, we're going to do a kit. And here's how it's going to work. It's not going to have any of your code. It's going to be just our own code. And it's going to you know, modify the gameplay. And we're going to sell it. What do you think? And this attorney was like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, so we sort of took that as a, all right, we're fine. No, you know, Atari doesn't care. Well, I guess Atari did care. And starting in late June or so, I think, uh, early July, we started hearing hints that Atari was upset and was thinking about coming after us legally. Um, and the way we found out about that was the local distributor Okay, let's talk about how video games get sold. They get manufactured by somebody like Bally or Atari or Exidy or Williams, right? Then they get sent to a, a, a distributor, a local distributor, think like a car dealer, right? So the local distributor is the people who have these games and then they would sell them to the end user, which is an arcade owner. So these distributors, and our local distributor was called Bally Northeast. They were owned by Bally, but they carried everyone. They carried all the manufacturers and they carried pinball games and they carried video games. They provided spare parts. They provided repair services. They let you, as an arcade owner, you could go and try out the games. So Kevin and Doug had gotten into a very good relationship with the people at Valley Northeast because that's where they had bought all their games, right? They were just another arcade owner or, or route owner. And it was sort of, a, oh, these, these kids from MIT, hey, they're here buying another pinball game, cool, <laughs> right? And they were very smart about how to maintain their own games and, and whatnot. So they got to be good friends with the, the guys there. And, 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 action, and Valley Northeast started selling our kit so they were a retailer for our super missile attack kit. Well, Atari contacted them and said, hey, we need an affidavit from you saying that you've sold one of these kits. You've seen it in action. <laughs> and, and, that, and then they turned around and told us. They valley Northeast, hey, by the way, Atari, you know, Atari's sniffing around. They're not happy with your kit. So, so we knew that this lawsuit was about to happen. And so we um, retained our own counsel, uh, a guy named Jerry Hozier was referred to us. And that's, Jerry's an amazing story on its own. But I'll <laughs> gloss over that for the moment. Um, but um, so, so Jerry was referred to us and he first met Kevin and Doug in an airport. They happened to be crossing paths in an airport and they sat down and chatted for a minute and Jerry was highly amused by these two MIT dropouts sure. who had this interesting intellectual property lawsuit about to happen. And Jerry's like, sure, I'll take your case. <laughs> right. So, um, so what happened, the first thing that happened was we actually filed suit first. We've filed suit for what's called a declaratory judgment, which is, hey, we want the court to judge that what we are doing is legal. Right. All right. So and but the real reason we did it was that meant it all was going to happen in a Massachusetts courtroom, which would be easier for us because we would not have to travel. Right. Right. Because Atari could have sued us anywhere, anywhere that we had sold one of our kits, they could have filed suit and we would have had to travel to whichever district court it was. But so we got to do it in front of Judge Keaton. And, and their job would be to make that as difficult as possible for you guys too. That would that would be their... their yeah, job. sure. Yeah, because they don't care, right? And uh, 
Um, and, uh, and they then filed suit. And so we had two suits. They got combined into one uh, in front of Judge Keaton in Boston. And uh, uh, that started happening at, I think, the th mm, late July. First time we went to court was like July 30th. Wow, this is all happening very quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, extremely quickly, right? Well, by now, because 1st of June, we're done with the super missile attack kit, right? So it goes into production and we're selling it and we're answering questions. I was the the the, the uh, customer support guy because I was the hardware guy, right? I had designed the hardware board. And so I would take phone calls from from arcade owners. Oh, I'm trying to install your kit. I'm having this problem. And I would help them out. And we're selling them and answering questions and whatnot. Uh, but meanwhile, we've started in, well, what's the next kit we're going to do? Right. So, so that's June, July. I mean, we're deep into working on other kits. And then this lawsuit happens. Oh, geez. Oh, you're taking us away from working on new stuff. And so Can we're dealing with any of those kits you guys were working on at the time. Well, we had to pick out what game were we going to do. And one we thought about was Asteroids. Right. Um, A better one. And, uh, what, well, what we thought about for Asteroids was, could we do a completely different game? <laughs> Not just a speed up, but a completely new game that would go into the same cabinet. Oh, that's cool. All right, because there's so many of them. There's so many asteroids cabinets. Oh, well, we'll come up with something. And so you start thinking about, well, what game could use the same number of buttons, right? Because you don't want to change the control panel. Fine, you change the label. It's not thrust anymore. It's counts, right? You know, something. So, so we started reverse engineering asteroids because we already had 6502 experience. We said, oh, well, so we'll try, we'll look at asteroids. So we looked at asteroids. And, um, but, but fairly quickly, we decided on Pac-Man um, because, uh, and I think it was one of Doug's friends who told him, um, I could get the name for you, I don't recall, but one of Doug's friends said, hey, here's this new game, Pac-Man. It's gonna be huge. And so this is mid 81, Pac-Man has already been a huge hit in Japan. It's just come into the U.S. in early 81, and it's just starting to take off. And it is, it's going to be a monster game. It's obvious it's going to be a huge hit. So there's going to be a gigantic number of Pac-Man cabinets out in the world. So, hey, if we come up with a kit, so number one, we'll hit the market right at when at the sweet spot, right? Right when Pac-Man is starting to slump. Right, right. So, which was a problem for Missile Command, because Missile Command, we got to market late. And, and it had already sort of peaked and was on the way down. And we, it, we did really well with our kit, Super Missile Attack. We sold about a thousand of it um, before they got, it all got shut down with the lawsuit. So, so a thousand kits, that was, and we made about $250 a kit. So that's a quarter million dollars. Yeah. In profit, one dollars too. So we're, you know. Yes. So that was it's like, oh, this is an interesting business. Let's keep a million bucks in, you know, yeah. 20, 2020. So that's right. So let's let's keep going. So, um, so so we so we're looking at Pac Man. We're going to hit the market at exactly the right time. It's going to have a gigantic number of cabinets in the U.S. And then the third thing was it was obvious the flaws in the game what people were exploiting to play Pac-Man forever. That it was a deterministic game and you could play patterns. So if you knew the patterns, you could play forever. And you could buy books that told you the patterns and people got, they could play blindfolded and they could, <laughs> so you could, you could beat the game. And it was obvious, ah, okay, so we're gonna fix the predictability of it. So that's like the number one thing we would wanna do. And off we went. So we were working on this on this Pac-Man kit for a couple months by uh, by the time the lawsuit started up. So uh, so then what happens? What happened with Atari? How did that how did that resolve itself? So um, so the first thing 
that happens is so the so the lawsuits happen so we do the declaratory judgment and atari files their lawsuit and they claimed trademark infringement copyright infringement unfair trade practice misrepresentation what was it misrepresentation of origin or something you know a bunch of different things and and we thought we had taken most of those into into account um in particular the copyright violation because we did not ship any atari code we shipped our own code and a little kit and um so our point of view is no no copyright violation here so we end up going to court atari asks for a temporary restraining order so this is you're allowed to immediately go to court and say, oh my gosh, we are being so harmed by this, Your Honor. You need to stop this terrible behavior right now, okay? And yeah, eventually we'll actually get to trial, but you need to stop this right now. And so that's called a TRO hearing, temporary restraining order here. And we go in front of Judge Keaton and the Atari argues and GCC argues and uh, basically, Judge Keaton says, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to prevent you, GCC. I think, I think Atari's merits are, have enough validity that I'm going to stop GCC from selling this kit. You have to stop marketing and selling this kit. But we, so good for Atari, they, they won that. But we got a couple of points in. Number one was we said, well, what if we change the specific issues that Atari has complained about and we come up with a modification, a new kit. Right. Maybe we can sell that one. And Atari is all, no, 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 no. And the judge is like, okay, sure. You have to show it to me and I'll make a decision at that point. So we're like, great. <laughs> and and uh, one of the Atari people, one of the uh, Atari attorneys commented on this in court because we said, you know, amongst ourselves, we said, we'll have a new one by Monday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and this uh, opposing attorney is still like, who are these people? You know, <laughs> what are they thinking? So number one was, okay, we can make a change and show it to the judge and he'll make a determination about the new one. That's number one. And number two was, hey, the, the Atari has to put up some earnest money basically, right? Because what if it turns out they're wrong? Well, they've harmed us by stopping our sales for some amount of time, right? And, and Atari is like, is like, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. We'll put up $10,000, you know? There's a bunch of clowns working out of their basement. Jeez, students, jeez, you know, who's this? And we push back and says, no, no, you gotta put up. We had talked to people before the lawsuit who were considering investing money in GCC, millions of dollars worth, wow. right? To do game development for them. And so we, we bumped up that number. So I think Atari had to post million dollar bond or something like that, or a few million dollars, something like that. Which again, to Atari is no big deal. But for us, it was a, you know, a little bit of a win there. And so the TRO hearing goes against us. We have to stop selling our kit. And, but we're still getting phone calls, right? So we're getting phone calls. Hey, I want to buy one of your kits. Sorry, Atari has sued us and we're not allowed to sell it to you. And they would get all upset and we would say, oh, please call vice president so-and-so at Atari and tell them how, how upset you are by this. So this, so, so this starts to be a hint of why this is going to be a problem for Atari, this lawsuit, all right? It's gonna be bad PR, bad public relations for Atari because their arcade owners, their customers who buy their arcade games are already starting to be upset with Atari. Right. Because Atari is also selling directly to consumers. They're selling the VCS. Right. They're selling versions of the games at home. And I think they even had Advertising is like, why waste quarters in the arcade when you can play at home as much as you Oops. want, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. So so the arcade owners, they're already kind of ticked off at Atari. Why are you selling asteroids for the home and missile command for the home? 
I want the kids coming into my arcade. So here's yet another reason for the arcade owners to be upset at Atari. Because the arcade owners loved our kit. Right. They wanted to buy Super Missile Attack. We had one arcade owner in California who called up and said, kids are coming into my arcade and saying, do you have Super Missile Attack? And I say, no, I don't have it. And the kids are leaving and they're going <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> Sell me one of your kits. We're like, okay. I wonder where that was. I wonder what arcade that was. Um, I know it was California. Yeah. It was California. And we actually had a guy in California who called up and said, look, I want to be your representative in California. And we're like, sure. So we worked a deal with this guy where we would sell him kits at a discount. And what he did was he, he um, hooked up, brought one of our kits into arcades and, and uh, mounted onto the missile command board because it, it, attached you had to unplug the roms and plug it in and so he brought this in and you show the arcade hunter let me show this to you boom and then just a couple minutes they could have like it up and running like a door-to-door sales one of the kids over kid what do you think of this game oh i love it i really want this so that's cool so he was getting sales that way just you'd show it to the arcade owner and some kid would play it oh yeah i want it you know how much for this so back to atari so so we immediately go off and start working on a modified super missile attack kit over the weekend that addresses over the weekend yeah it actually took us about a week or so to come up to address a lot of the issues that atari had brought up another thing we started doing was what's called discovery now in a lawsuit you have what's called discovery which is both sides get to do depositions basically interview the the, the, the people on the opposite side and you get to ask them for documents right. and you do all this ahead of time so that you're not wasting the court's time doing it in court, right? So, so we started, well, we need to depose the engineers at Atari who <laughs> designed Missile Command and we need to depose Ray Kassar <laughs> because you know, you're claiming that we are damaging your business. Well, we need to understand how much is your business being damaged. So we need to talk to the very top people at Atari about this, right? Well, I don't think Atari had the faintest idea that this was about to happen to them. They just assumed that, you know, Atari is this massive high-tech company at this time. And if they filed suit against someone, they just expected us to just crumple and die and right. run away. And we're like, no problem. You're suing us for $15 million? We've got nothing. <laughs> we dropped out of school to do this. What are you gonna do? Force us to go back to school? So what, right? And, and so we're like, sure, we'll do this, no problem. So this sounds like fun, going to court, all right? So. It, it starts being this drain on Atari that we're using up their resources and keeping their people busy. And uh, um, so the second time we go to court is for what's called the preliminary injunction hearing. So the preliminary injunction is like what happens after the TRO. And it's not quite as quick. It takes a few weeks to schedule the preliminary injunction hearing and you have to provide even more evidence to the court and the court decides okay i'm going to uh prevent this bad behavior from going on while we wait for trial so at the preliminary injunction hearing we had um, shown off the new version of super missile attack and the court looked at it and they said yeah it's not yeah you did address some of these issues but you know it's not enough you've still are not allowed to sell it. And uh, so your sales are still prevented. Yeah, you're disappointed. It's like, okay, fine, but great. You know, uh, we're still deposing and uh, um, we're thinking this is looking really good for us. That from a legal standpoint, um, this we're starting to get evidence from the depositions. For example, one of the things was Atari said, oh, well, we are misrepresenting the origin of the game. When people look at the cabinet, once it has super missile attack installed in it, people look at it and they still think it's Atari because it still says Atari on it and it has the Atari artwork on the side. And we're like, okay, 
we'll put stickers on the side and cover it up. But they made a claim that the arrangement of the fire buttons was specific, was trademarkable. And it was specific. And when people saw that arrangement of the fire buttons, that meant Atari. Atari did this. And you are not allowed to reuse that in your game. Well, when you go and you depose the engineer and you ask him, why did you design the fire buttons like that? And he says, well, it's functional. It just matches the way your fingers are arranged. Plus, they never trademarked it or, or copyrighted or, or patented it anyways, right? So yes, and, and well, you can, you, can, you can trademark it without registering the trademark. Okay. But, he, but because it was functional, if it's functional, you cannot trademark it if it's functional. And so that's sort of like, okay, you just got, we just got an Atari engineer to say that one of the arguments Atari is making doesn't, is, is invalid. Right. Right. So stuff like that started happening and, and they claimed patent infringement. If you look on the back of the missile command, they have a list of this machine is covered by the following patents and they list them all. Well, basically they listed every patent that Atari owned including ones that had absolutely nothing to do with Missile Command. Well, that's a misrepresentation. And so that made all of their patent protection less viable. You know, it, it gave us an opening to argue against them. So, you know, it's like Jerry Hosier. Jerry Hosier was an astonishingly amazing intellectual property attorney. And so to have him fighting against Atari, that was just wonderful to watch. And, and the Atari people were like, oh my God, how did they get Hosier? <laughs> and, and so it's not looking good for Atari. We are, it looks like we might actually win this, this case, wow. which would be an absolute disaster for Atari. Because the thing they really did not want, they did not want a court to say it was legal to modify their game. It opens the floodgates. It right. opens the floodgates. They really do not want that to happen. And so if there's any chance that the ruling might go in our favor and the court says, oh yeah, absolutely, these guys can add, can, can modify a game like that, that's perfectly valid. And, and you have to understand that, that copyright protection for video games and copyright protection for software was not clear. In 1981, it was absolutely not clear how it was, what was protected and what was not. And so this was one of the very, very first cases where this sort of thing was argued. Uh, and so Atari, and then finally, Atari was very impressed technically with what we had accomplished. Of course they were. They looked at our kit and how we did it the way we did the copy protection, um, they thought was very clever, which we got a patent on, by the way. Oh, good. Um, and uh, they thought that was very clever. They thought the whole gameplay was clever. And they finally were like, what do you guys want? <laughs> I think this was Skip Paul talking to Kevin and Doug, you know, they have in between a deposition or something. Like Doug and Kevin are like, we want to keep designing games. You know, they said, we want to design enhancement kits as a starting point for designing complete arcade games. Right. And Atari is like, well, okay, sure. Why don't you design games for us? Well, why don't you drop your damn lawsuit? <laughs> so that's, and that's what happened. That's cool. And so, so Atari dropped, drops their lawsuit. And then we and the various uh, negotiations between Kevin and Doug and Atari and, and Warner. Warner owned Atari, and it actually turned out that our agreement, our development agreement, was not with Atari, but was with Warner Communication. That was part one of our interview with Steve Golson. Next time, we'll be up with part two, where we'll talk about Miss Pac-Man, the Atari 7800, and how GCC ended its relationship with Atari. Now, here is more of Missile Command by Tony Longworth.
Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.